Let me tell you a story today. This story dates back to 600 years ago. In the 16th century, when the Mijikanda indigenous communities were threatened by enemy tribes, they found refuge and protection in the coastal forest of Kenya. And over centuries, they developed rituals, beliefs and practices that created a unique spiritual bond between the community and the forest. For every fallen tree, a new one had to be planted. The spiritual force, the souls of their ancestors, believed to be living here inside the forest, have to be appeased to call upon rains for a successful harvest and even thanking the forest for everything it provides. But today, the elders of the community are struggling to keep their knowledge systems alive. In the words of a Kaya elder, when the trees fall, the birds scatter, meaning when an elder dies, the knowledge is lost. So today in the wake of the climate crisis, the same forests that once protected the Mijikandas now have to be protected. Will the Mijigandas be still able to protect the Kaya sacred forest in the same way that they have been protecting it since centuries? This is Whispers of the Earth, a podcast where we talk stories of traditional knowledge systems that have shaped our understanding of the natural world. I, your host Pooja, will speak to conservationists and experts from around the globe and unpack the importance of traditional knowledge systems in environmental conservation. But first, let's know a little bit more about the Kaya Sacred Forest from Chemuku Vekesa from the Kenya Forestry Research Institute, who has been working in the area for almost a decade. Kaya forests are very unique forests because uh, they are sacred to the Michikenda community. Kaya forests are small patches of forest. They are found mostly on the hill places. Most of them are as small as one hectare and largest kaya forest you will find will be about 500 hectares. So they are not that big, but they are very rich. You find kayas having diversity of over a hundred or so different trees and plants and which are endemic to those kayas. You can't find some of these plants elsewhere. So how important do you think is their belief systems in protecting the local biodiversity and the ecosystem? I can say it's very, very important. These communities, they have stayed within their landscape for many years and they know what is good and what is bad for them. In terms of even conservation, in terms of the kind of foods they eat, in terms of crop varieties they, they, they grow. So knowing that kayas are home to a biodiversity-rich ecosystem, can you tell us how they are actually managed? There are rules regarding the governance and management of this kaya forest. And the rules are guided by kaya kinds of elders. And these elders have put in place measures, taboos, that ensures these particular forests are well conserved. 
and Kayas are part of a global biodiversity hotspot and also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And as mentioned by Chemuku, the customary rules and regulations of the Kaya Council of Elders are actually playing a vital role in protecting these sites. And you know what? It is not only you and me. Even the locals of the community cannot enter these sacred forests without the prior permission of the elders. But despite these regulations, as per reports, Kayas today are fast disappearing. So I spoke to Kristina Sudarska, who is with the International Institute for Environment and Development, IIED, to know more. Elders are, you know, getting older and the youth, very few of them actually recognize the importance of traditional knowledge. Part of the reason is that they're quite close to Mombasa. It's a big city, about 20 kilometers away. And there's high youth unemployment and you know people migrate to Mombasa so there's there's a lot of modernization happening in terms of their culture the other thing is the schools that that also the modern education reduces the time for knowledge transmission between elders and children but also there's been a history you know that area was the first place where christianity arrived in africa in the 1600s there's a long a strong sort of christian and muslim uh, faith that has suppressed the traditional beliefs. So all these factors together are, um, you know, quite a concern. And it is not only the Mijikanda community, but there has been a history of social injustice that the indigenous communities have faced in the name of modern conservation solutions world over. I mean, the protected areas are, you know, national parks are essentially allow land grabs for conservation. Um, from the indigenous and local peoples that live with nature and have often been living sustainably with nature for generations. The first model was Yellowstone National Park in the US. It expelled indigenous peoples and killed indigenous peoples. And this model has become replicated worldwide. But to address these issues, Christina and her team at IIED are working on a concept called the Biocultural Heritage Territories. So I had to ask her what this concept is all about. Biocultural heritage is essentially a concept which links people and nature. So it's really a response to the separation of people and nature in dominant conservation approaches. We've um, sort of started working with the Quechua in Peru, um, in the Andes. And that's in fact where the, the concept of biocultural heritage first came from in 2005. And the key components that we identified were traditional knowledge, biodiversity, cultural and spiritual values, landscapes and customary laws, and languages, indigenous languages are also really important. So we're now working in Kenya in the Kaya sacred forest landscape in, in the coast to try and see if this concept and the territorial model from, from the Andes, from the Quechua people, can be adapted to this quite different sacred landscape context in, in Kenya. Right. So knowing Kenya and Peru have very different landscapes and even cultural values and requirements as well, right? So how was this concept adopted in Kenya? So they have actually quite similar concepts. It's called Mudzini, which is like the Ailu concept. It very much emphasizes balance between humans and the, the land and the sacred world. And they also have similar um, cultural values, um, harmony in society and with nature, a reciprocity in society and with nature, solidarity in society and with nature. And these are really important values that biocultural territories are guided by. 
biocultural heritage territories use food as the entry point, you know, a key objective is to establish in situ genetic reserves. With climate change, we have a huge amount of uncertainty. So communities are finding that they need more diversity to reduce risk. And so what biocultural heritage territories do is conserve uh, traditional crop varieties, which are often more resilient um, and require less external inputs. So biocultural territories are essentially evolving gene banks and co-evolving with farmers. Whereas the gene banks that we have are not evolving anymore to, to climate pressures. So it's really important that we support in situ conservation and biocultural territories have proved to be an effective tool to do that. You know, few of the words that draw my attention from this conversation are harmony, solidarity and reciprocity between people and nature. Something that I feel is very common amongst communities across the globe. So IIED's Biocultural Heritage Territories that focuses on in-situ conservation practices and traditional knowledge systems could very well help the Mijikandas protect the Kayas. But are all traditional knowledge worth preserving? Yuan Evis, a young naturalist and nature educator from Chennai in India, shares a very interesting perspective. For him, not all traditional knowledge might be worth preserving. And it is actually the concept of knowledge making that is equally important in conservation. I have been working a lot with coasts and coastal landscapes lately. I'm from Chennai, so that specific coast uh, I have a, a deep experience with. From 16 years of age, I was conducting biodiversity-based uh, science enrichment programs in the village schools around. You know, in my practice and experience, I have learn to differentiate between two things because there is traditional knowledge which is relevant which uh, is resonant with the sort of thing we are speaking and there is obsolete traditional knowledge also mm. and there is non-traditional knowledge which is extremely relevant it has got to do with the practices of knowledge making i differentiate in my mind and this is from uh, the philosopher tim ingold Exhabitation and inhabitation. Knowledge making which happens to inhabiting, being in an ecology, a landscape, letting it be part of my identity and me its identity. There's a certain knowledge making which comes out of that. And there is a certain knowledge making which comes out of exhabitation, which is I see the landscape or a certain group of people as an externality. And a practice of knowledge making comes from that externalization and separation. This can very well be traditional. I'll tell you one of the things we do. We run a one-year apprenticeship program for children of the Fisher community along the Chennai coast. Mm. And it's been working out really well because we base their home beach and other biodiversity areas as rich living learning spaces beyond any classroom can offer. Uh, I work a lot with artisanal fisher folk. They have practices of observing bands, uh, not catching certain kinds of fish, the dolphins, turtles, having specific nets for specific species, going out into the ocean, calling the winds with pronouns, you know, as if it were a living being, going out with a specific catch in mind. I want to catch prawns. I want to let everything else alone. Those are practices of inhabitation. And these are often communities who are at the front line of conserving coastal landscapes. 
So what are some of the issues today you think these communities are facing and how can your apprenticeship program help address this? All marginalized communities feel the pressure of economic powers more than anybody else. So there is a day-by-day -day erasure of what was traditional, ancestral, and a succumbing to the needs and violence of you know, larger economy, you know, the capitalist market. You go and speak to a 30-year-old, uh, what they know is a minute fraction of what a 60, 70-year-old knows and, can, and just see in the landscape the vividness of speech in their descriptions of what the ocean is, what its mm. creatures are. And in some sense, we are seeing this sort of a apprenticeship, not just make children do better. I mean, some of these children, they were not able to read and write, not because they're not capable, but, but they don't see the relevance of it. But then when it's through a portal of engagement with reality and biodiversity, there is a drive to learn. So, so there is academic objectives are beautifully mm -hmm. taken care of far better than the classroom. Not just that. Second thing is there's an interest in their own roots and traditions revived in a certain sense. Local communities are indeed at the forefront of conservation, whether it is the Mijikanda indigenous communities of coastal Kenya or the Quechuas in the Peru or the coastal communities in India. But how important is it for us to balance this knowledge system with the available scientific knowledge? For the last 50 years or more, there's been a very much push for, for modern science and technology as a solution to food security, to all, you know, all challenges, really. There's been you know, the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, and that's been spread. And I think we need now to reconsider because all that had a big impact on traditional knowledge uh, for environmental stewardship and for resilience, because indigenous peoples and tribal peoples have been dealing with climate change for hundreds and thousands of years, and that knowledge has been passed down, and we're losing that knowledge. So I think we really need to stop this erosion from the dominant knowledge system onto the, the traditional knowledge system, and say, actually, we need both. They're both equally valid. They're both equally important. And we're never going to address huge global challenges like climate change unless we have both these knowledge systems working together rather than one eroding the other. I really think that today our experts made two things very clear. First is that science alone cannot help us address the climate crisis. Focusing on traditional knowledge and the concept of knowledge making is equally important. And second, which I truly resonate with, is that we as individuals, no matter where we come from, should see nature as part of our identity and not just a separate entity. So I sincerely hope we are able to listen more closely to what our natural world has been telling us if we are to address the massive global challenge of the climate crisis. This is a really important topic and it's quite urgent because traditional knowledge is disappearing very fast. UNESCO has estimated that 50 to 90% of all languages will be lost by the end of this century. And more than 20 indigenous languages are lost every year. I don't think that documenting it in a database is, is going to solve the problem. We need it, traditional knowledge systems in communities where they can use the knowledge alongside science. This was Whispers of the Earth, produced by me, your host, Pooja Chaudhary, 
in support from the School of Media Arts and Humanities, University of Sussex, and under the supervision of Professor Martin Spinelli and Podium.me. And if you are interested in any of these topics that we discussed today, please do listen to our full episodes. Links to full episodes, audio credits, and the work of our experts are mentioned in our show notes. Until then, keep listening to your natural world. Save it, protect it, and most importantly, respect it.